Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on this here program, delighted to have you with me. Um, I want to talk about the Supreme Court this hour because their last day is tomorrow. Uh, There is some breaking news. Justice Breyer says he will leave the court at noon tomorrow. Uh, He will uh, retire from the Supreme Court. Now, uh, to start off in this conversation, I want to go to Mitch and start with Mitch. How are you, Mitch? I'm great, Eric. How are you doing today? Good. Hey, uh, I just have a lot of, like, people kind of posting about the next ruling. And I just had a question uh, for tomorrow for their final rulings about Griswold versus Connecticut, about contraceptives and then Oberfeld versus Hodges about same-sex marriages. Do you think those two are going to go back to the states as well? No, I I, I don't. Um, In fact, uh, in the opinion itself, it says that uh, no, those won't. Uh, And Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence also says no, they won't. The reason the left is is doing this one is to scare people. Uh, they they need the fear of the issue, uh, and they're premising that fear off of a mischaracterization of Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. Uh, I'm pulling up Thomas's concurring opinion here so we can get a sense of what he actually says. Thomas does not say. We need to go back and reconsider interracial marriage. Of course, he's in interracial marriage himself. Um, Let me just just, uh, read to you this this part from Thomas's dissent. So this is where the fear factor comes from. And it is important to understand that this is the media in particular and the left trying to scare everyone. I joined the opinion of the court because it correctly holds there's no constitutional right to abortion. Respondents invoke one source for that right. The 14th Amendment's guarantee that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The court well explains why, under our substantive due process precedents, the purported right to abortion is not a form of liberty protected by the due process clause. Such a right is neither deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition nor implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. I write separately to emphasize a second more fundamental reason why there's no abortion guarantee lurking in the due process clause. Considerable historic evidence indicates that due process of law merely required executive and judicial actors to comply with legislative enactments and the common law when depriving a person of life, liberty, or property. Other sources by contrast, suggests that due process of law prohibited legislatures from authoring the deprivation of a person's life, liberty, or property without providing him the customary procedures to which free men were entitled. Either way, the due process clause at most guarantees process. It does not, as the court's substantive due process cases suppose, forbid the government to infringe upon certain fundamental liberty interests at all, no matter what process is provided. As I have repeatedly explained, substantive due process is an oxymoron that lacks any basis in the Constitution. The notion that a constitutional provision that guarantees only process before a person is deprived of life, liberty, or property could define the substance of those rights strains credulity. The resolution of this case is thus straightforward. 
The court today declines to disturb substantive due process jurisdiction generally or the doctrine's application in other specific contexts. Cases like Griswold v. Connecticut, Lawrence v. Texas, and Obergefell v. Hodges are not at issue. The court's abortion cases are unique, and no party has asked us to decide on the 14th Amendment and substantive due process. Thus, I agree. For that reason, in future cases, we should reconsider all of the court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, because many substantive due process decisions is demonstrably erroneous. We have a duty to correct the error established by those precedents. After overruling these demonstrably erroneous decisions, the question would remain whether other constitutional provisions guarantee the myriad rights. For example, We could consider whether any of the rights announced in this court's substantive due process cases are privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States protected by the 14th Amendment. To answer that question, we would need to decide important antecedent questions, including whether the privileges or immunities clause protects any rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution, and if so, how to identify those rights. That said... Even if the clause does not protect unenumerated rights, the court conclusively demonstrates abortion is not one of them. Now, what does all of this mean for those of you who aren't lawyers? The cases that he cites, uh, the Griswold case is the contraception case. Lawrence v. Texas is the right to engage in private consensual sexual acts case. The Obergefell v. Hodges case is the right to same-sex marriage. And the left has taken these to say, oh, my gosh, Justice Thomas wants to get rid of these things. No, actually, if you read what I said, he said substantive due process is not the place to park them in the Constitution. There are other places in the Constitution to park them. So, for example, uh, the Griswold versus Connecticut case is the privacy in the bedroom case. Was there privacy in the beginning? In, in the, yes, there absolutely is privacy contemplated within someone's house. Therefore, privacy should be extended. Likewise, there was privacy between a patient and a doctor. That should be considered. Uh, Lawrence versus Texas, the right to engage in private consensual sexual acts. That, again, was there a history of this? Yes. Was, Was there open homosexuality in the beginning? No, there was not. But there was absolutely privacy in the home and and within relations between other people. Uh, Was there a right to same-sex marriage? No, but has that right evolved over time? Yes. Is there a place in the Constitution where this could be found? Yes. Thomas's point is that these things don't need to go away, but that they need to be put where they are in the proper place in the Constitution. And substantive due process, in his mind, uh, is not a real thing, and so we should not find rights in a substantive due process clause. Thomas goes on to argue that all substantive due process does is makes lazy judging where judges based on their whims can say something is constitutional when there's no basis in law factor precedent for it. That's it. But of course, the media and the left don't want you to hear that full argument. They want to scare you about the Supreme Court. And so that's why they're saying, well, your birth control is next. No, actually, if you read Clarence Thomas, what he's saying is that actually there are other places in the Constitution where those rights should exist, not within substantive due process. If you read the court's opinion itself and Brett Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, what you read is that there aren't enough votes on the Supreme Court to even consider those things. One thing the court may consider is the case tomorrow, West Virginia versus the EPA. I thought it would come out today, but it did not. It will come out tomorrow.
Yesterday, if you listen to my program, I explained uh, the Chevron doctrine that essentially uh, there is a doctrine and it says if Congress writes a law that is very nebulous, that agencies get the power to interpret it. And if their interpretation is reasonable because the vagaries of the law were intentional, then the courts must defer to the agencies and how they interpret the law. Originally, what happened with that Chevron doctrine is that the agencies would find ways to write regulations that were box checking so they didn't have to do any work. They just say, oh, yeah, you want to do this? Okay, check the box, fill out the form, and you get to do it. And now what happens is the agencies, overrun by liberals, hijacking the bureaucracy, are using the Chevron doctrine to say, well, it's reasonable given the vagaries of the statute that we have this power too. And because we have this power, we can write new regulations to exert our power in other ways. The case at hand in West Virginia, West Virginia versus EPA, is the EPA used the Clean Air Act to demand that power companies and states clean up the coal industry for global warming purposes. The problem is that the Clean Air Act was written at a time no one even realized there was global warming. If anything, at the time the Clean Air Act was written, they were worried about global cooling. But you fast forward from the 70s to 1970s to the 2020s, and now the EPA say, well, we can use the vague, broad language of this law that was written in the 1970s to say we also have the power to regulate climate change. And because we have the power to regulate and control climate change, we have the power to regulate power plants and tell them to clean up their coal and make it cost prohibitive for them to convert their coal plants so they have to shut them down. And we can put an entire industry out of business. West Virginia and other states sued. Now, yesterday I, I mentioned the Chevron doctrine. Several friends of mine have said, you really need to focus on non-delegation because Chevron didn't come up in the argument. Chevron is kind of the unstated issue here. Every single member of the Supreme Court has questioned the Chevron doctrine, every single one of them. What the left on the court has refused to do is question non-delegation. Non-delegation strikes fear in the hearts of progressives. Last year, there was a case in the Supreme Court. Actually, a couple years ago, case in the Supreme Court. And they said that Chevron didn't apply. Elena Kagan wrote the majority and Sam Alito wrote a concurrence and said, I will go along with the concur. I will go along with this because there's no reason to reconsider Chevron unless someone's willing to go all the way back and reconsider the delegation of powers from Congress. What he meant was Sam Alito doesn't think Congress can delegate to the executive branch legislation. And I agree with Sam Alito. The problem is that for the last hundred years, our entire administrative state, regulatory state, has been based on the idea Congress can delegate powers. If you know anything about the history of this country, if you study basic civics, you know that our Constitution divides government into three branches. The first branch is the Congress. The second branch is the president. The third branch is the Supreme Court and the subsidiary courts. All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. 
Each bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall before it become a law be presented to the President of the United States. If he approves, he shall sign it. If not, he shall return it with his objections to the House in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections into the journal and proceed to reconsider it. If after such reconsideration, two-thirds of that House shall agree to pass the bill, it shall be sent together with the objections to the other House, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered, and if approved by two-thirds of that House, shall become law. But in all such cases, the votes of both Houses shall be determined by yeas and nays, and the names of persons voting for and against the bill shall be entered on the journal. If any bill shall not be returned by the President within 10 days, Sunday accepted, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall be a law, in like manner if he had signed it. Every order, resolution, or vote to which the concurrence of the Senate and House of Representatives may be necessary shall be presented to the president, and before the same shall shake effect shall be approved by him or be disapproved by him, repassed by two-thirds of both houses. That's Section 7 of Article 1. Section 1, all legislative powers shall be vested in a Congress which shall consist of a House of Representatives and a Senate. Article 2, Section 1, the executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States. The President shall be Commander-in-Chief under Section 2 of the Army and Navy and of the militia of the several states. He shall have the power to make treaties. He shall fill vacancies. He shall enforce the law. If Congress is the legislative body, non-delegation says Congress can't allow the executive branch to make the law. There are only three branches in our government. Some would argue on the left that federal agencies like the FDA, the FAA, the FDIC, and the like, that they exist in some quasi-fourth branch of government that's partly legal, partly legislative, partly executive, except the Constitution doesn't contemplate such a thing. And if the Constitution doesn't contemplate it, then we're bound by the Constitution, not your whims. And if you're an executive branch agency, well, then you can't make the law. And what a lot of people are worried about is tomorrow the Supreme Court is going to say Congress can't delegate. Congress can't delegate its lawmaking abilities to the executive branch. Congress has to write laws clearly and prescribe parameters by which the executive branch enforces those laws. And regulations must only be to clarify uh, how the enforcement of that law is going to be. So Congress can't write broad laws and give vagaries to agencies that allow them to expand their power to write their own legislation. That's what's at stake in West Virginia versus EPA. Can Congress delegate its legislative authority to the executive branch agencies to write new laws and impose fines and regulations and the like not contemplated under the text of legislation passed by Congress? If the Supreme Court says Congress cannot delegate, if it is a non-delegation issue, and it should be, well, then suddenly our entire administrative state for the last hundred years is out the window. And everything is up for grabs now. And we will have to rethink how we do our administrative agencies. And honest to goodness, that's not a bad thing. We should, in fact, do just that. I want to explain why after this. There are a lot of options out there. If you're a self-starter and you want to invest on your own, it can be really confusing. And I'm delighted to tell you about SoFi because that's who I use. And now I've got them as an advertiser. 
If you're a SoFi user, uh, my gosh, you get all sorts of options, great research. You get the ability to invest in stocks, EFTs, crypto, plan out your retirement. Uh, more importantly, you got people you can call on. I mean, for example, um, I can use SoFi to buy stocks and EFTs and do the deep dive research if I need to and get complimentary financial planners ready to help answer questions. Uh, you can too, whether you're stuck on where to start or need help deciding what to do next. You can even save for retirement with traditional Roth and SEP IRAs. They have so many options. If you're into crypto, you can also explore crypto. They've got 30 available coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, Solana, Dogecoin, and so much more. But more importantly, they've got the number one ranked automated investment tool, their robo-advisor. It takes the stress out of building and managing a diversified portfolio without having to pay a bunch of experts to do it. I really like SoFi. Y'all, I've tried, you name it, and I probably tried it, and I settled on SoFi and think you will like it as well. Cut through the jargon, make investing easier with SoFi. Visit SoFi.com slash Eric to learn how you can win up to $1,000 in stock when you open an account. That's SOFI.com slash Eric. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson. Remember, if you text the word data to 33777, you can get the show notes email and get all the links of all the stuff that I talk about and a whole lot more if you subscribe. If tomorrow the United States Supreme Court ends the delegation of powers from Congress to executive agencies, they will destroy the federal administrative state as it has existed for the last hundred years. And that's a good thing. The danger of capitalism in the free market is not that we switch to socialism, but that we switch to a group of technocrats who run things. And that's exactly what's going on in our country. Congress has gotten very lazy. Congress writes very broad, very vague laws and then passes it off to professional bureaucrats who fill in the vagaries and the broadness with regulations that are themselves essentially legislation. They're not rules and regulations to actually implement what Congress has said. They expand what Congress has said because Congress gets lazy. That allows the regulators to be legislators. So they have the power not just to write the laws, but to also execute the laws and then to serve as judge, jury, and executioner with fines implemented if you violate the regulations they write. You've essentially empowered agencies of the federal government to be little bureaucratic dictators. And the technocrats, oftentimes in the executive branch, survive a presidency, and so they implement their own goals and their own will and not the will of the actual president. We see this in the intelligence community all the time. We see this in the various regulatory states. We saw the fight that President Trump had against the internal operations of the EPA to get his will done. Uh, the bureaucrats fight back, drag their hills, and they decide they're the ones in charge. It has empowered an unelected bureaucracy, the delegation of power from Congress to the executive branch to write regulations that serve as laws. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court considers West Virginia versus the EPA, and the House of Cards could come tumbling down. If the Supreme Court says Congress cannot do that, if the Supreme Court says Congress cannot delegate, the entire administrative state of the federal government comes to an abrupt halt tomorrow. That's why it's such a big deal. It's what, by the way, Congress should do or the Supreme Court should do. 
There are three branches of government in the United States. The legislative, the judicial, the executive, and the judicial. One writes the law, one enforces the law, one interprets the law. Federal bureaucrats do all three. It's a blending of the three branches of government into one, controlled, no less, by the executive branch of the president. That's not the way our country was designed. If you don't like it, amend the Constitution. They haven't amended the Constitution. They've let this fester, and now the technocrats are in charge, and the Supreme Court could end that tomorrow. That's why this case, West Virginia versus EPA, is the biggest case of this term and one of the biggest in Supreme Court history. You sure can. The phone number is, as The Voice said, 877-973-7425. How's about we go take some phone calls? Cindy, going to go to you next. Welcome. Thank you for taking my call. No, this is on the issue you were just talking about. Being that Justice Breyer is going to retire tomorrow at noon, are they still going to come down with a decision? Or do you think the left is going to be pushing so hard saying, well, maybe that should be reconsidered when the new justice takes you know, take oh, no, 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 no. Um, so, the, so the announcements will be at 10, and he will retire at oh, noon. Okay. Uh, yeah, they always okay. release at 10 a.m. On, on the day. So, yeah, he will, he'll retire after he'll close out. Uh, they'll release the opinions, and away he will go. I'm actually really intrigued to see what happens with this case tomorrow. My guess is that the justices are going to decide the EPA has exceeded its authority, but they're not actually going to blow up the administrative state. I want them to blow up the administrative state. I just don't know that after, well, they've just gotten rid of Lemon versus Kurtzman and they've gotten rid of Roe v. Wade. Are they willing to do that? I don't know that they are. Now, to the phones again, 877 877- Nine seven three seven four two five. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric, for taking my call. Quick question: sure. uh, With all these three million this year, and how many last year of immigrants coming in from Mexico and wherever, how do they support themselves? Being here in Georgia, years ago, we could go and pick somebody up on a corner to work for us. Uh, now I can't find anybody. Nobody can find anybody to work. Uh, where are these people supporting themselves? That's my question. Well, you know, so that's exactly what is still happening by and large. Uh, they will become housekeepers or day laborers. They will uh, show up in, in lots of different uh, places around different towns where people know to go to get the day laborers, and, and they'll do work like that. Uh, they will also survive off social services within the Spanish-speaking community, uh, and they will try to get paperwork that makes them look legal so that they can stay in the country even if they're not. And there are plenty of uh, unscrupulous employers out there who are perfectly willing to hire these people off the books. And they will take go through great pains to cover it up so they don't get in trouble with the federal government uh, to be able to do it. And they'll get away with it. Uh, the government will turn a blind eye to it. And so they will, they will ultimately find jobs. Here's the reality, the thing that you're not supposed to say, particularly in conservative radio. Uh, we should build a very high wall and we should keep all of these people out. But the bottom line is we need to find a program to allow a lot of these people to come in and work because we don't have enough workers for a lot of these sorts of jobs that they're willing to do. You know, we used to have a program 
in the 50s and 60s. We have a variation of it now, but it's not the same. We used to have a program where people from Central America and from Mexico could fill out a very easy form, document themselves, where they're going, what their work is, what they're interested in. They could come into the country and they could work on farms and fields and factories for a season and then go home at the end of the season. And unions got rid of the program. Unions pushed Franklin, or not Franklin, um, Lyndon Johnson to get rid of the program. We used to have that. Now, some people won't like it, but the fact of the matter is there are jobs that Americans won't do at that low wage. It's not that Americans won't do the job. It's that they're not going to do the job at that wage. And these people will uh, do a job at a low wage that helps keep prices down for the rest of you. Now, some people will complain and, and say that's bad and we should do that. But the reality is none of you want to pay the labor rate that you would otherwise have to pay to get some of the stuff that you want to get. And so many people who scoff at having day laborers in this country who are uh, not residents or citizens, they depend on that still nonetheless for low wages or for, um, for low cost of goods. That's just a painful real reality that people have to come to terms with. Uh, we should be finding a way to allow them to stay in the country and work, but we cannot, we cannot, we absolutely cannot incentivize any of these people crossing into this country illegally with no respect for our border. We need a very, very, very big high wall. You know, Herman Cain, God rest his soul, he used to have a saying that his preferred solution was that we build a 100-foot high wall and behind it, we put a 100-foot wide moat filled with alligators. And if you scale the wall and swim the moat and get here, we'll shake your hand, give you citizenship, and put you to work. <laughs> now, of course, he got attacked on the campaign trail for saying that, oh, you want to feed them to the alligators. No, I mean, his point was, if someone is so desperate to come to this country, they will do what they do to get here. Well, God bless them. We should welcome them into this country, and we should give them a job. Maybe not citizenship. We should give them a job, though. Uh, because they're willing to work and do jobs that a lot of Americans, frankly, aren't willing to do unless they get an extraordinarily high wage that exceeds what they can be paid. I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of with him on that. 877-973-7425. Let us go back to the phones. Michael, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Hi there. Um, Hi. I'm wondering, I'm wondering where the Army Corps of Engineers falls within the bureaucracy. Is it a bureaucracy or is it a division of the Army? Or, I mean, they administer a lot of rules and regulations that probably are not codified. Yeah, look, um, I, I think the courts would have to determine that. I think the Army, Army Corps of Engineers is technically part of the Army, uh, but you're right. Uh, they cause a whole lot of heartache for a whole lot of people with a lot of their regulations. And uh, courts typically over the last number of years have not really been fans of the Army Corps of Engineers and the way they've uh, implemented a lot of their rules and regulations. So I think yeah. the Army Corps of Engineers is one of those entities that if they go towards non-delegation <laughs> tomorrow is going to have a ton of problems. <laughs> I kind of hope so. 
Anyway, that was my comment. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. Michael, it's funny you should say this. I, um, I, I, I have a friend, if I remember the facts right, friend of mine who built a house on some land and decided to build a private lake. Did all of the EPA uh-huh. clearances, uh, and the EPA was a pain in the butt to deal with. Uh, but built this private lake for his family. Really, it's a glorified fishing pond. And then the Army Corps of Engineers decided to to, to intervene um, completely oh, outside man. their wheelhouse and cost him all sorts of extra money. Um, yeah, and probably a time because they don't act quickly, but they act. Yep. Oh, so, yeah, they, they anyway. act and, and not quickly. <laughs> Look, appreciate the phone call. And, yeah, I, I, I certainly hope they're a prime example of something in the administrative state that needs to be corrected. Uh, Josh, I'm enjoying the phone calls. Josh, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing, Eric? Good. What's going on? So I'm a federal employee and I have not gotten vaccinated. And I, I know that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just agreed to hear our on bonk, uh, our case at their on bonk in September. I was just calling to see if you had any insights or what you thought would happen with this federal vaccine mandate. You know, uh, I, I don't know what it was. So today or tomorrow is the last day for a bunch of people in the military to get vaccinated uh, before they lose their jobs. I find it deeply hypocritical that this administration would say if you're HIV positive now, you can fight on the front lines. But if you don't get the COVID vaccine, you're going to lose your job. Uh, it's absolutely nonsensical. But that's what this administration has chosen to do. Uh, my personal guess is that given the composition of the Fifth Circuit, they're probably going to allow people to get out of the mandate uh, if they have reasonable uh, exceptions for it. But I, I got to say, I do think the president of the United States under the historic powers of the presidency uh, can order executive branch employees to get the vaccine. I don't like that, but I think historically he can. And my guess, honestly, would be if this went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would say the same thing, that they may not think the vaccine is necessary, but the president has a uh, historic precedent of being able to tell executive branch employees, you got to get vaccinated. Um, I personally think at this point where so many people have so much immunity from the various strains of COVID and the vaccine is not stopping you from getting new strains, that there's no point in the vaccine for most people unless you're immunocompromised, in which case it will at least ensure that you get, um, if you get the vaccine or if you get the virus, you're probably not going to get as bad a case of it. I mean, that's been our experience in our house. My wife, who has lung cancer, got COVID and uh, her, the side effects from the vaccine were worse for her than the COVID was. I have not gotten it to my knowledge. Now, because I've had the vaccine, if I get tested for the antibodies, of course, it'll show that I have. I was talking with my uh, buddy last night, Rich McCormick. He's, he's going to go into Congress, and he's an ER doc, and he says he's just uh, he's sure he's gotten it, but he hasn't. Um, he's never gotten symptoms, and I'm I've never gotten symptoms. Maybe I have. Now, a buddy of mine who's a medical researcher, when the when COVID first hit, he said start taking zinc every day. Uh, boost your zinc. It, it'll help your uh, response to fighting off the virus. And I've taken zinc every day. Not only have I not gotten a cold since then, but I haven't gotten COVID that I know of. I haven't gotten the flu. haven't gotten anything. Now I get the flu vaccine and I got the COVID vaccine. I got the COVID booster. Given my wife's situation, we wanted to be as safe in our house as we can. I know a ton of people who have gotten the vaccine, including my wife and the booster, and they still got COVID. Maybe I've gotten it and I just, I had no symptoms to it. I have no idea. 
Uh, maybe I'm just this typhoid Mary of COVID carrying it around, giving it to other people, but I've, I've never had it. I've never tested positive for it. Um, but, and you know, there, there's all this hand wringing now that there's a new wave of COVID coming, new wave of COVID coming, and it's bad. They're seeing it in New York City. They're seeing a, a variant of the Omicron variant, and it's apparently really bad. And, and I keep hearing these stories and thinking, but wait a second, isn't it now like the flu? Why are we continuing to freak out about this situation when it's like the flu at this point? People get the flu every year. We have a flu season. We have a COVID season. It seems to be somewhat cyclical, depending on your part of the country, based on how we indoors you are, but people are getting it and they're not falling over dead. And isn't that what we wanted? We're not going to stop it. We convinced ourselves by calling it a vaccine that uh, people were not going to get it and yet people are getting it. So it's not really that it is per se a vaccine issue or that, that it's like a, a, a standard vaccine operation. It's just minimizes our impact from covid and that, I think, is exactly what we want as a society, isn't it? That if you're going to get it, we're not going to overwhelm hospitals. That's kind of what I think. Now, um, I'm going to go back to the phones. Randy, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Hey, Randy. Hey, uh, Eric. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, back in the day here in, in Georgia, you know, poultry is a big thing. But they uh, it got to where... Growing up, uh, it was pretty much whites that worked poultry as time went on. Uh, blacks worked the poultry, and then just Mexicans. Now, being in the Air Force, I was up in Nebraska, and sure enough, uh, you know, the uh, facilities for uh, slaughtering cows and stuff, uh, they would come in and raid them every once in a while because they were. Mexicans working, and the reason I say that is they want to work, they need the work, and they'll do the nasty jobs I feel that we, blacks and whites, won't do. Yep. And and not to say that's a bad thing or a good thing, but then again, I look down my street and see nothing but Mexicans working on uh, uh, pipeline to put in uh, uh, internet services. So they're definitely not stupid people, number one. And they work hard, and somebody is hiring them, and they are working good jobs now. They are. Uh, and I don't, and look, I don't know why you that know, is. In a, in a lot of cases, in a lot of situations, uh, particularly if they're working big technical jobs, they've got to be here legally on a green card or something. They, they have to be. Um, those are the ones that the government pays the most attention to, the ones that make the most money. Uh, but it, one of the things that is unique, you, you, whether you, if you go to a poultry processing facility in the South or a beef processing facility in the Midwest, you're going to find a lot of uh, Hispanic workers there because they're willing to do those jobs that Americans aren't willing to do at the price. Um, and they're sending a lot of that money back home and they're living in poverty. And I don't know that we should treat these people badly. I don't think people should come into this country illegally, but I certainly think we have a problem on our border. We need to secure the border and we also need to make it effective to be able to allow people to come into the country and do these sorts of jobs. Now, one of the companies that is out there helping the conservative movement 
uh, advancing, well, all these wins of the Supreme Court, the the gun rights cases, the pro-life cases, Patriot Mobile, the way they do it is they get you as a customer, they generate a profit from having you as a customer, and they allocate a portion of their profit to the conservative costs. They were designed, constructed, made to be a conservative organization. And they're Christians and pro-lifers who uh, run the organization. They want your business. Now, if you would like to do business with Patriot Mobile, you go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. You will get free activation with my name. Uh, if you want to call them, they have 100% U.S.-based customer service. So you're not calling Mumbai or Sri Lanka. You're calling someone in the United States. They want you. Just tell them I sent you. You get free activation. The phone number is uh, 972-PATRIOT, 972-PATRIOT. Tell them I sent you. You get free activation. Or just go online. PatriotMobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. You can see their coverage maps. You get great 5G data voice. They use the same cell towers everybody else uses. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you'd like to be on the program, we got a whole lot more we got to cover in the next hour, including, I actually, believe it or not, I promise I won't bore you. I want to talk about the iPhone. It's turning 15 today. Today is the 15th anniversary of the release. I stood in line with my buddy Clayton. All my wife wanted to know was which of us was dressed as Chewbacca and which is Princess Leia. Because that's the sort of stuff she says. It cut. Nonetheless, I do want to talk about it. But before I talk about that, uh, there's actually a couple of stories out there that we need to talk about the political implications of the Dobbs cases. Polling is rolling out. It doesn't appear like there's going to be one. Also concurrent to that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on just in society in general. What we're seeing on the left is really a, a new religion taking shape. And we should spend a little bit of time on that. Like, for example, uh, so many people on the left are outraged by the idea of that high school football coach being able to pray on the 50-yard line on a football field. The very same people who are outraged by that uh, want your kids to go to Drag Queen Story Hour. Why is that exactly? I mean, the people who are really outraged by a coach praying and maybe having players with him are the same people who want you to go to the Drag Queen Story Hour and the Pride Marches. Uh, what we're seeing is a competing religion, and secularism doesn't like competition from other religions. We should work this out because I can tell you where it ends. It ends badly for all of us with some violence, and the violence is starting to take shape. Um, but importantly, the polling is showing that as this happens, uh, the left is pushing people out. Uh, the New York Times today has a big story on moderate Democrats. Moderate Democrats. It's not Republicans who are defeating them. It's Democrats who are defeating them. The Democrats themselves are purging from their ranks their moderates. And you know what that's doing? It's helping the GOP in moderate areas. In, in Colorado, for example, a moderate Republican who supports abortion rights just got the Senate nomination there, and Democrats are starting to freak out about that.